All right, let's... Uh, should have a copy of the notes. There's a new set of notes this week. Week two. And uh, our notes. The glories and responsibilities of Christian service. Studies in 2 Corinthians week two. So we'll go ahead and kind of get started, and, and those other people can straggle in like they do in the morning service. You know? <laughs> when I come and I sit down, I look around, I'm the only person there. And then, you know, after about 20 minutes, the whole place is filled up. Where did those people come from? You know, I, I just don't know how they, they all snuck in there all of a sudden, you know? We are uh, looking at 2 Corinthians. And we noticed last week that Paul is in Macedonia. Macedonia is a province, a Roman province, in what we think of as Greece. Uh, there's Macedonia here and the province of Achaia here. Achaia is more properly Greece. Macedonia is different from Greece. Of course, today, all of that is called Greece, the country of Greece. But in Paul's day, it was this lower province... Uh, down this blue line here, Athens, Corinth, that would have been what they called Greece proper. So Paul, we know, is in Macedonia, maybe at Philippi, we don't know where, and he is writing his second epistle to the Corinthians. And last week, we looked at the, we're talking about the greeting and thanksgiving. We looked at the greeting in verses 1 and 2. We were looking at the thanksgiving in verses 3 through 11. And if you look at outlines of Paul's epistles, you'll commonly see the, next, the section after the greeting called the thanksgiving. But we said, this thanksgiving is quite different from Paul's normal thanksgiving. It's different from the thanksgiving in 1 Corinthians. Because normally, Paul has, as he begins his letters, like he does 1 Corinthians, a thanksgiving for the people he's writing to. He thanks God for the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And then he has a prayer report. That is, he tells them, he reports to them how he has been praying for them. That's his normal way of writing. But not in this letter. In this letter... This thanksgiving is not Paul thanking God for the Corinthians, but Paul thanking God for what God has done for him and Paul asking prayer for the Corinthians for him. Paul has been just recently in a very distressful situation in the province of Asia, he'll tell us about. And so he's writing to thank God. We notice in verses 3 through 7, for thanksgiving for God's comfort and suffering. Paul has been going through some affliction, some trouble, and he thanks God for that. And remember he said, he taught us a lesson there. He said, I've learned that one of the reasons God allows suffering to come in my life is so that I can comfort other people. Now, there's a lot of reasons we suffer for various reasons. There's reasons, hardships and difficulties. But one of the reasons, Paul says, is so that we can empathize with others. If we've gone through difficulty, experiences, hardships, it enables us to be an encouragement, to be a help to other people, other Christians, 
who are going through those same kinds of things. Now we're looking at verses 8 through 11, where Paul thanks God for something else, for his deliverance in the province of Asia. Notice verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. Now, Ephesus is in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? Paul says, I was so distressed that I thought I was going to die. That's how bad it was. And so I mentioned here, Paul. Uh, now Paul proceeds to describe the particular affliction. It's actually a singular in the Greek, so there's some debate about if he's thinking about a singular thing or a combination of things that he just renders into a group. Most translations translate troubles, like the NIV does here. And he received in this affliction, in these troubles, God's comfort, God's empowering. And he says this affliction took place in the province of Asia. Uh, Now, the province of Asia, of course, is this province here. And Paul, on his third missionary journey, as we looked last time, uh, on his third missionary, spent most of his time in, in Ephesus, in the province of Asia. And from Ephesus, he wrote 1 Corinthians, and he's left the province of Asia. He went to Troas, he goes to Macedonia, he's now in Macedonia, and he's reflecting back, he's looking back as he's in Macedonia, looking back at things that have happened in the province of Asia. He talks about this affliction in the province of Asia. Now, we don't know exactly, was it in Ephesus itself? We know he had a harrowing experience in Ephesus because in Acts chapter 19 it talks about what happened, how he was almost drawn into the theater, how the people there got into a riot and so forth. There was a big demonstration there. Maybe that's it. Or maybe it was his journey when he left Ephesus to go to Troas and then on to Macedonia. Somewhere in this province, Paul had an experience so bad that he thought he was going to die. He thought, this is it. This is the end of my life. That's it for me. Uh, He was crushed. He lost all hope of survival. Verse 9. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul thought, this thing got so bad, Paul thought, this is it, I'm going to die. But he didn't. He came through it. He went on to Macedonia, and now he's writing to these Corinthians about it. He's writing it in the epistle we call 2 Corinthians. So this experience was like just about, it was like dying. It was like undergoing a death. And he says, what happened here, however, is that this compelled me to totally rely upon God. I got to the place where I just had to totally rely upon God. Have you ever been in that place before? <laughs> where you just, things were so bad. If you haven't, maybe you will get there one day. And that's really a kind of a good thing. Because uh, the tendency in our world and age is to rely less on God every day. 
We have so many other things we can rely on. We live in a modern world, technology, doctors, people, health. You know, we have all these things that we can rush to and trust to before we rely upon God. And so sometimes it's good that God brings us to a place where there's just nothing but God. We just have to trust God. And if he brings us through, he does. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. And that's the way Paul felt here. So it's good for our sanctification. Paul says in verse 10, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver deliver us again. Now wait just a minute, Paul. Can you really say that? Can anybody say that? He delivered us from this peril, and he will... That's kind of presuming upon God, isn't it, a little bit? I mean, there's no guarantee that God will deliver us from every peril, you know? Christians die every day. Christians are being martyred, you know? ISIS is cutting the heads off Christians, you know? A lot of people are praying, but God's not delivering them. They're dying. But so notice what Paul says. He kind of backs up here a little bit. He says, on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. So he's clarifying. Clarifying, yes, he is. He says, we we are setting our hope that he will continue. But there's no guarantee. As you help us, now if God does deliver us, he says, how will he do it? As you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So, the he who delivered Paul, I say here, of course, is God, the father of compassion. He will deliver us, but he kind of qualifies it by adding, on him we have set our hope, he will deliver us. So we can't presume upon this gracious favor of God. Or gracious favor of protection or deliverance. God may grant it, God may not grant it. If Paul experiences uh, future deliverance, it'll come because Christians are praying for him as he says here. And that'll be a good thing if God delivers him because that'll cause many people to thank God. And that'll bring praise to God. Now, we come to 112 through 716. Really the first major division of the epistle. 112 through 716. And I'm calling this, Paul defends his ministry against criticism. This is a difficult epistle. It's a difficult epistle to understand. It's a difficult epistle to teach. You know, you're not, I always tell preachers, don't make excuses. You know how a preacher will get up and he'll say, he'll make excuses. And so when we're critiquing preachers, don't excuse, don't make excuses. But I'm going to make some excuses. <laughs> I'm just saying that this is going to be difficult. This is the hardest epistle of Paul to follow his argumentation, to follow his logical argument. Now, epistle like Romans is very easy. I can, count, I can walk you through Romans in my head right now. I can walk you through chapter by chapter. But I can't walk you through 2 Corinthians without some notes here. It just gets confusing. Because what Paul does is, he starts off talking about a topic, and then he has a digression. And he kind of runs off here, and then he has another digression, and he goes off here, and then he has another digression, and then finally he comes back over here. 
So it gets a little complex. Goes off a rabbit trail? Your rabbit trail, yeah. Okay. And, and it gets a little difficult to follow. So you'll have to kind of bear with me. We'll, we'll try to look at the outline and see where we're at and see if we can follow this. Um, it's difficult to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. This is the most difficult Greek in Paul. If you're going to translate from the Greek New Testament, don't pick 2 Corinthians first. <laughs> it's the most difficult, and it's the hardest to figure out. Paul speaks in very short sentences, and it, sometimes it's hard to pull, pull it all together. But we'll do our best here to try to make a good sense out of what Paul is saying here by the help of God. So, Paul defends his ministry against criticism. That's the broad theme, one twelve through 7.16. We get to chapters 8 and 9. Paul is talking about the offering that he's collecting. And he's encouraging the Corinthians to give to that offering, this missionary offering. Then we get to 10 and following, Paul is defending his apostleship. So we have kind of three major sections we'll see here. But right now... Paul's defending his ministry against criticism from the Corinthians. The Corinthians are pretty critical people, you know. Uh, not like us. We're very kind and, you know, you know, we are. But those Corinthians, they're pretty critical. And they're always giving Paul problems. First of all, A, Paul defends his conduct, 112 through 213. His conduct against the Corinthians' complaints. I say here, the Corinthians were great complainers and probably took the opportunity of Titus' visit with a severe letter to register a number of complaints against Paul. Now, we'll come back to these letters again. Last time we talked about that Paul wrote a series of letters to the Corinthians. He wrote a letter previous to 1 Corinthians. He wrote 1 Corinthians. He wrote then what's called a severe letter, a sorrowful letter, and then he writes 2 Corinthians. But I'm going to show you that in a chart again. So Titus had been sent to Corinth with a letter, and Paul is waiting for that letter to come back. He finds Titus in Macedonia, and then he writes 2 Corinthians. So I'm saying they probably used the visit of Titus to say, here's some complaints we have against Paul. What are these complaints? The first complaint, Paul writes obscure letters. Paul says in verse 12, Now this is our boast, our conscience testifies, that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to fully understand that you can boast of us just as we boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. So as I say here, beginning in verse 15 and continuing through 2-4, that's our next section, Paul will defend himself against the specific charges of vacillation and a domineering, uh, domineering, being domineering leveled against him by his opponents, by some people in Corinth. But before he gets to these main charges, Paul deals with two more general accusations. So in verses 12, 13, and 14, we're dealing with two main accusations. One, 
He acted shamelessly and insincerely in his relations with the Corinthians. That's what he says first. Our conscience testifies we've conducted ourselves, and especially in our relationships with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. He's defending this attack that he has not been sincere. And he's acted shamelessly. And two, that in his letters he had shown worldly shrewdness and had been evasive by writing one thing, but meaning or attending and intending another thing. So Paul seeks to uh, defend himself against these charges, as I say, in the only way possible, by appealing to his overall integrity, to his conduct. So Paul claims here in verse 12 that both in the church and in the world, the way he had acted, his conduct had been characterized by purity of intention. I have been, I have been, uh, I have conducted myself with integrity and godly sincerity. Uh, he says, "In when I wrote to you, you didn't have to read between the lines. My meaning was on the surface." We have not relied upon worldly wisdom. We don't write anything you can't read or understand. You don't have to read between the lines. What I say is what I say. And I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm not trying to deceive you. My meaning is on the surface. Now, he reminds them in verse 14, you have already, already begun to understand us in part. You've already begun to appreciate us in part. That is, uh, when we get to later on, chapter 7, and we find that Titus has come back to Macedonia and he's reported to Paul about how the Corinthians responded to this severe letter, it's clear that they have, they have uh, accepted Paul. They, they understand what Paul is saying. They are repentant and they, their attitudes have changed. So... Paul is, first of all, saying here, listen, I don't write obscure letters. I mean what I say. You have clearly understood us in part, and I hope over time you will, you will come to clearly understand us. A second problem here, uh, a second complaint, is Paul changes his travel plans. He writes obscure letters. He changes his travel plans, verses 15 through 22. Because I was confident of this. What is this? Well, that's what we talked about in verse 12. I'm confident of my own integrity. I'm confident that God has led me in my decision making. I'm not acting in a worldly manner. I'm I'm doing it by the grace of God, as he says. I'm relying on God's grace. And because of this, I wanted to visit you first so you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. Now he's thinking about when he's in in Ephesus. He's been in Ephesus before he went to Macedonia. He says, when I was in Ephesus, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or did I make plans in a worldly manner so that the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? So one of the charges against Paul is that 
He tells people his travel plans, and then he changes them. He's very fickle. He says one thing one time. He says one thing another th- another time. He's just doing it because he's doing what's best for him, not what's best for you, and so on. Now, this gets a little silly in a way because the point is Paul write to the Corinthians, and he tells them his travel plans, what he's planning to do. Well, we've all had that experience, you know, we write, I wrote, I mean, I told my sister I was coming to Virginia to see her this summer, but I got pneumonia. I didn't go. Was I being fickle when I told her I was coming to Virginia this summer? No, I planned to come. I got pneumonia, I just couldn't come, you know. Well, things happen. You know, the Apostle Paul, he makes these plans, and then things happen. So, if we look at Paul's travel plans, uh, we see in the epistles various plans that get changed over time. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians for a moment, Paul's epistle to 1 Corinthians. If you look in Acts chapter 16, he will tell you what he's planning to do. Remember in Acts, I mean, in 1 Corinthians 16, He's talking about an offering he's collecting. Paul is is collecting an offering among the Gentile churches. That's going to come up particularly in chapters 8 and 9 again. He's collecting an offering among the Gentile churches that he's taking back to to Judea and Jerusalem to help the poor saints there. And he first mentions it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And he tells them about giving on the first day of the week and so forth to this missionary offering. And so Paul is in Ephesus, and if you look at his itinerary there, I won't take time to turn, he says, I'm going, I'm in Ephesus now, but I'm going to go over to Macedonia, and then I'm going to go down to Corinth, and then he says, I'm planning to go to Jerusalem then. So that would have been the first itinerary the Corinthians would have heard of. So they they heard Paul, he wrote that in 1 Corinthians. But as we just read in 2 Corinthians, now we have a different itinerary. This is what we just read in verse uh, 15 and verse 16. In that itinerary, he says, uh, I'm in Ephesus, and uh, I wanted to visit you first so I might benefit you twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then go to Judea. So he says, here's my plan. My plan, about plan, and I, this, this is already passed because Paul is up in Macedonia, but he said, when I was in Ephesus, this was my plan. So the plan of 1 Corinthians has been uh, scrapped. I had this new plan. My plan was to come to Corinth first, go to Macedonia, and then come back, then... Uh, come back to Corinth. And now that would be the double visit, see? So I'm going to go to Ephesus, go to Macedonia, I'm going to come back, and you'll have a double visit from you. Two visits. And then I will go on my way to Jerusalem. Um, But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, um, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, um, I'm sorry, so that, that's the itinerary of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 here, uh, 15 and 16. So, um, 
even this itinerary is not what happened. So we had that itinerary of 1 Corinthians. And then he says, this was my itinerary when I was going to visit you twice, and they know about that. But that didn't happen. That's not what actually happened. What actually happened is this. Paul went over to Corinth, and he describes this going over, I mean, he goes over to Corinth, and he describes this visit in 2 Corinthians here as a painful visit. Paul goes over there, and he has a lot of opposition from one person, maybe more, who really opposed the Apostle Paul. And as we'll see in the book, the Corinthians don't immediately rebuke this person. They don't stand up for the Apostle Paul. Paul goes over there. He's trying to restore relations with the Corinthians. He's had trouble since first. If you read First Corinthians, you know there's trouble between Paul and the Corinthians. And so Paul goes over there on this visit, and uh, he is hoping to restore relations. Things get worse. He runs into this opposition. Now, remember, he said the plan was, I'm going to go to Corinth, to Macedonia, and then I'm going to come back to Corinth, and you have the double visit. Well, that doesn't happen. Paul immediately goes back to Ephesus. That painful visit was so bad (laughs) that Paul went back to Ephesus. He goes back to Ephesus. We will see in a moment here. He sends Titus with another letter. Paul goes on to Troas. He waits for Titus. He doesn't find him. He goes on to Macedonia, and there he writes 2 Corinthians. So this is the actual itinerary that Paul actually followed. He went over to Ephesus. Things went over to Corinth. Things went bad. He comes back to Ephesus. He goes over to Troas. He goes to Philippi. And then he does come to Corinth in Acts chapter 20. We haven't got there. Right now... Paul is in Macedonia. This is his actual itinerary right now. But he will go to Corinth in Acts chapter 20. So I list there uh, on your notes the actual itinerary there. So you see, it could be looked like that, well, Paul says, yes, I'm coming. Then he says, no, I'm not coming. He says, yes, I'm coming. I'm not, you know, they can twist that, you know. Circumstances change Paul's travel plans, but they twist that to make it look like Paul's fickle. He'll tell you one thing, one day he's coming, and the next day he's not. So you can't betrust this guy. He's he's fickle. He's vacillates. He's irresponsible. He's acting like a worldly person. Verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. I'm not saying yes one moment, no the next moment. You can't, so you don't know what I'm really meaning. As I say here, Paul is so distressed by the charge that he was fickle and made his plans in a worldly manner and so convinced of his innocence that he solemnly evokes the unquestionable truthfulness of God. But surely as God is faithful, sort of guaranteeing his time, I'm calling upon God to be my witness here that I am not acting in a worldly manner. 
Neither in proclaiming the good news or changing my travel plans or telling you, I'm telling you the truth. It's not yes one day and no the next. Verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. There was no fickleness in God and in Jesus Christ. No ambiguity. But in him, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So Paul goes back to the original message of the gospel that was spoken at Corinth. And he says, when they proclaimed that message, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, it centered on God's Son. There was no inconsistency. There was no indecision in that. And that is why when you responded in corporate worship, you said amen. You agreed with our gospel. You were saved through our gospel. I say here, the fact that the Corinthians have said amen to Paul's gospel was in fact a validation of Paul's preaching. So here's the problem. If you're going to criticize the apostle Paul and... Uh, say he's a charlatan, say he's a worldly guy, then you're sort of, you, you got to figure out where does that put us? Because we were the guys who listened to his message, you know? We, we claim to be Christians through the message of the Apostle Paul. If he is not telling us the truth, if he can't be trusted, where does that leave us? So Paul is going to appeal back to them. Notice 1 Corinthians 1, 5, and 6, he said, For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all kinds of knowledge. That's the opening of 1 Corinthians. And he's thanking God for them. He says, listen, God gave you these spiritual gifts of speech and knowledge. Verse 6, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. The fact that God gave you these gifts of the Spirit confirms that our message was true. If you were regenerate and you had the gift of the Spirit, it proves that. And later in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you yourselves are our letter. You are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. It was common in the ancient world sometimes to take letters of introduction, even in the modern world, to take a letter of introduction. Paul says, I don't need a letter of introduction. You're my letter of introduction. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So the fact that you're regenerated, born again, changed individuals, is indication of the validity of our ministry. So Paul is arguing here, that his consistency was confirmed by his message and their reception of it. And if that's true, would he then act in a worldly manner about little things like travel manner? If he could be trusted in the big things, the gospel and the message, is Paul going to be some guy manipulating these minor things like travel matters and those kinds of things? The consistency of Paul's message proves his motives were right. Verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. 
I say Paul now concludes his defense of the charge of levity in verse 17. In verses 21 through 22, he reinforces his argument by pointing to the fact that it is God who produces stability in himself and the Corinthians. Both had been brought into an intimate relationship with Christ. This was accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit. The God who gave both Paul and the Corinthians the Spirit in order to guarantee the common destiny is the same God who ensures the integrity of Paul's conduct. So it's the same God, the same Holy Spirit who indwells you that confirms me. And he talks about some aspects here. Now, the key doctrine here is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is, because we're regenerate, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Remember Paul says in Romans 8, if a person does not have the Holy Spirit, he's not a Christian. He's not a kid. He's not a believer. So we are at the moment of regeneration indwelt. There's the doctrine, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he uses various metaphors here. He talks about he anointed us. This is probably referring to the, to the Holy Spirit uh, in, in the context. He says, God set his seal of ownership on us. He put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So he uses two metaphors or two symbols to illustrate the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that's like a seal. You know, you've seen how in the ancient world they would roll up a scroll and put some wax on it and put a seal, a ring seal or something. You seal a document. A seal denoted ownership, uh, authentication, security. It's, it's owned by someone. And so he says, the fact that we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, he is acting like a seal. He is showing that God owns us, that we're authentic, that we're really his children. And he's trying to show this to the Corinthians. You're authentic and I'm authentic. He uses also the metaphor of a deposit. He set his seal of ownership on us. The Holy Spirit is a seal. And he put the Spirit in our hearts as a deposit. Uh, so the Spirit can be viewed as a deposit. This is the Greek word arabon, which is a legal term pertaining to contracts or sale of service. Sometimes it's referred, uh, translated as earnest. He's the earnest. So it's like similar in our language where you put a down payment down. Uh, or we used to have, uh, used to have layaway. Layaway? Yeah. That was when I was in Indiana. They didn't use layaway; they said layby. Yeah, did they use layby? Y'all, does Michigan use layby or layaway? Layaway. Okay, well, not in Indiana. We went to Indiana, and they started talking about at Kmart. Do you want to lay this by? <laughs> what, what is that? What is this layby here? Now they use layby in Indiana, but you know it's a, like a lay. It's a deposit. So you put so much money down. And it's a guarantee. Or like uh, you're getting a house. You put earnest money down. So he says this spirit, the spirit is like a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The full benefits of salvation. So the Corinthians have complaints. Paul writes these obscure letters. He changes his travel plans. He has a domineering attitude. 
Verse 23, I call God as my witness. I stake my life on it. That it was in order to spare you, I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. So I say here, in addition to the charge that Paul had acted arbitrarily, he had arbitrarily altered his travel plans regarding the Corinthians according to the mood of the moment. Paul was also accused of being a spiritual dictator who tried to dominate the Corinthians and their faith and did not hesitate to cause them pain. But Paul says, in effect, the reason I postponed my intended visit to Corinth was to spare you a painful visit. So Paul was not unstable in his desires. Paul had a purpose. He wanted their joy. So, you remember... uh, Paul, uh, this was his intended uh, scenario. He had intended to go to Corinth and then go to Macedonia and then come back and have a double visit to Corinth and then he was going on to, uh, to Judea. But this is what actually happened. He went to Corinth, the painful visit, And he went right back to Ephesus. So he's talking here. Remember, he talked about a double visit. Well, they didn't get a double visit. They got one visit because that one visit was a very painful visit. And he said, I determine I'm not going to make another painful visit to you. It was order to spare you that I didn't return to Corinth. I didn't make that second visit. Um... So Paul says, you're, you're accusing me of, of something really wrong here, that I didn't come back. I didn't come back because it was going to be disastrous. So what Paul decides to do, as we'll see, instead of making that second visit, is write a letter. Write another letter over there and have Titus take that letter is what he plans to do. I say here, uh, Paul, since Paul speaks of sparing the Corinthians, there is the implication that he might have punished or pained them. This would open up Paul to the charge that he was some kind of tyrannical overlord who sought to intimidate his converts. This, in fact, may be a charge the Corinthians made. Paul rejects that idea. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? So Paul now gives the reason, or at least part of the reason, for why he decided not to revisit Corinth personally. Paul believed that to inflict needless pain on the Corinthians at that time would have effectively dried up the only source of his own happiness. Yeah, the Corinthians were in sin. They needed to repent. But Paul says, I didn't want to inflict more pain at this time. Things were just too tense, too difficult. So I didn't want to cause you any more pain. Verse 3, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So I say instead of making a second painful visit to Corinth, 
which would not have been best in light of the circumstances, Paul wrote the Corinthians a letter that has become known as a sorrowful or severe letter. So Paul uh, comes back to Ephesus, and he decides, I'm going I'm to write, he's referring here to this letter. Now, he's already written that letter because he's writing 2 Corinthians now. So let's see how that chronology works. We said last week that Paul actually wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. In my previous letter, he says, I wrote to you about not associating with sexually immoral people. But they were associating with sexually immoral people. We, we could basically sum that up with an aim that would be basically the timing was not right. You mean you the timing was not right for what? The timing was not right for him to go back right. at that time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so then he writes Second Corinthians. Now there's if you remember in Second Corinthians, they had written a letter to him. First Corinthians seven one. Now concerning what you wrote about. So they wrote a letter to him. I'm not I don't have their letters on here. They he wrote a previous letter. They wrote a letter back. He writes first Corinthians. And then he makes the painful visit. That's the one we're talking about. 2 Corinthians 2, 1. When he crosses over to Ephesus and he comes immediately back. That's that painful visit. That's that sorrowful, that, that, that severe visit. Painful. And he says, I determined, he says, that I would not make another painful visit to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. So therefore, he decides to write a letter. Chapter 2, verse 4. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Now, he's writing about this in 2 Corinthians, because we're in Macedonia and he's writing 2 Corinthians, but he's referring back to that severe letter that he wrote to them and was carried by Titus. And Paul is waiting for news. He's waiting in Macedonia. Waiting. Well, actually, he's waiting in Ephesus, as we'll see. As we'll see as we get on in 2 Corinthians, he's waiting for him to come to see what he says. So, Paul says, Next, forgiveness for the offender, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So we're talking about Paul defends his conduct. The Corinthians' complaints, we've seen those. And now Paul is still defending his conduct, but he's talking about forgiveness for the offender. Remember I said that when Paul went over there for that severe visit, that painful visit that didn't turn out well, he got some opposition from somebody. A person or persons. And the Corinthians didn't do anything about it. Paul sent Titus with that severe letter to say, hey, you got to take care of this. you got to do something. Well, they did. They did. They punished this guy. They reacted properly. We'll see that in chapter 7 when Paul talks about how Titus has come back and I'm very happy because things have gone very well and I've got your response, and so forth. And they have punished this guy, but Paul now says, okay, you punished him, and he's repented, so now I want you to forgive him. 
and he's going to argue here forgiveness for this offender. But our time is gone, so we'll have to wait for that for next week. All right? How many do we have? Okay. Next week we'll be in room one. So you know where room one is? It's across from the auditorium. Room one. We will not be back here. We'll be in room one. Okay? All right. Thank you.